17. First, let me warn. I did not like your next letter. So you will know my wrath before you get to the end of this one. Here is what has set me off. Not only do you keep on ignoring how serious it is that you must come and see me, but all you say is, I'm a lying cow and can't never be believed. The nerve! Only, you don't bully me out loud, which is how it's done faces to faces. What you do is sly and legal. You tuck it away in your letters. Here is my last word about being a lying cow in my trial. If I told the wigs and gowns how me and my sister was at each other's throats the morning I lost everything, it won't have taken them their tea breaks to make me look guilty as shit. Which is what they'd done anyway. But at least I gave them what to um and ah about. I only lost my trial because sly legaling does too many zigzags for the truth to get out. You should know that, Oto. Ain't you finished your law exams yet? What gets me ballistic is, you don't believe nothing I say neither. Whose side are you on? Or are you like the rest? Do you really see me bulldozing the only joyful thing I ever had, which was being with my sister forevermore? My sister was the roof over my head. She was the love that only happens once you found the home you never had. Speaking of things no one never had, what is this bollocks about Scarley's millions? Why should I even care if she was minted? As you well know, I can find all the riches a girl needs in a flash. Or should I say, with a flash. I don't need to give not one stuff what Scarley had in the bank when all I got to do is show my tits to the next filthy bloke what comes along with chains round his neck. Speaking of making blinged up blokes drool for a living, it really does make no odds what Ralph Godwin tells you, cause he's a Judas and no mistaken. I will guarantee he is one bloke who will have sordid relations with anything the right shapes and sizes dead or alive. It don't matter what he says, he goes like a machine. What about you, Oto? Do you go like a machine? Somehow I doubt it. Cool as carrots is what I reckon you are. Or is it cauliflowers? I never known the difference, because I don't eat roots. Speaking of things going like machines, have you noticed about humans how all it takes is a weaselly few seconds? You only have to put blokes and blokettes together for half a minute and what do you get? Billions of babies in prams. Only babies don't know shit. They're all the same. When they're big enough to bonk, they don't give a toss about how all it takes is a few puffs on a fag and hey presto, now there's even more fucking babies. You of all people should know, Oto, how everyone lies through their mouths. It stands to reason, and it's the only way to make things better. Cause it is scientifically proven that everything has to get better, all of the time. Ain't you beat to school? It's a race to find out who's king of the heap. 
In times when I was skiving off school, what we played was fucking fibber. Do you know that game? I could play it all day long. In case you missed out in your education, this is the way fucking fibber goes. First, you do some drugs with your gang. Then, you say two things. One of them is meant to be true. You might say, I never fucking killed my sister. The other one's meant to be a clangor. You could say, I never fell out with my sister, which is a fucking fib. Only, if no one shouts fucking fibber, what that means is, we all do more drugs and we all put more cash on the pavement. That way, not only is the next round higher stakes, but the fibbing gets more hilarious. If you dare shout fucking fibber, you need to fucking prove it. But, and here is the next but. If you do, you get your fucking winnings. You can sod off and score more fucking drugs if you like. But, 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 if you don't prove nothing, oh toe, all those winnings will be for your playmates to keep. And the cherry on the cake of it is, I can make the fat gob calling me a fucking fibber pay for the next bags of dazzle on the house. You might say this is harsh. You might have a point. But that is how games get played. Fucking Fibber is a cog in a machine built by our Father in Heaven to work out who is best at winning. Not what is true, but who is king of the fucking heap. Don't you know that? Call yourself a solicitor? In more roundabout words, Ralph Godwin won the game you 2 was playing. Now he reckons I can be flushed away and forgotten about. That is, as may be. It is what is happening. But when the bloke, what goes like a fucking machine, says he never done a quickie with yours truly in his whole life, that is a fucking fib. Cause, like the rest of us, oh toe, he is a fucking fibber. Trouble is, no one can prove it. Which means your romping Ralph Fonso gets to fly again, free as birds. Or should that be, gets to lie again with his words. Cash machine sound coming up. Ker-ching! New game. When I find rhyming words, it means I can open my cash register and put all your notes in. Speaking of poos, have you noticed how once you flushed one away, that's the be and end of it? It's like it never happened. Here's something for us all to ponder on. Marley Godwin never done a poo in her fucking life. What do you make of that, Mr. O-Toe-Low-Sir? Do I hear you say, piss off, what bollocks is this? Granted, you might say it nicer. You might say, pause a moment there, Marley. It ain't appropriate for you to natter so casual about something the rest of us would just as soon forget. Then I will say, if you think I'm talking bollocks, fucking prove it. Have you ever seen me do one? No, you ain't. Not unless you like watching girls and lose. And even then, you ain't never seen nothing squeeze out from my comely arse. That is the hardest science. Am I too right? Only there you are, 
shouting fucking fibber like a stupid git. When you can't prove shit. Ka-ching-a-ling. Speaking of porkies, all I did was I told a lie to make people see my bigger truth. What happened to my sister weren't my doing. In my shoes, fibbing about us shouting at each other is what anyone would fib about. What happened then was, in my letter to you, I told you I told you a fib. Only that weren't no fib. So how can you write back with a straight face saying, cause I'm a lying cow, I can't never be believed never more. And seeing as we're being so fucking straight, one thing Jenny whatever could tell you in plain English is what a lying Judas looks like. She could tell you a lying Judas looks like all the blokes what flushed her away once they was done. Then Jenny died. Now she can't grass about what the machine called Piss Flaps got up to in his garage with his spare parts because he was a fucking machiniac. It got too much for Jenny. It was only by the grace of my maker I was saved from her overdose. Amen. That is the gospel according to Marley. So how can you sit there and say Marley can't even tell a lying Judas apart from a normal one? You can't. So ends my wrath and rant. I will now move on to the final bit of your legal letter. You say the bloke that got Scarly Preggers was called Julius, not Julian. I say, if you say so, O oh Toe, only there ain't that much in it. Two names, one as poncy as the other. You say, Julius, not Julian, was snooping about in Cambridge before Scarly got killed. I say, what of it? Let's have done with it. All he was was the wankstain what drove my sister round the bend. What I want to know now is, who is the person who told you about Scarly's ex-boffin? Was it Emilia Godwin? I'll wager it was. Your words have her paw prints all over them. Watch out for that girl. She's like cats creeping up on birds. Have you seen how she sniffs? I will warn you now, Oto. If Amelia Godwin has said something juicy about the Beanstalker, it's only because she wants to put you off the scent by making you think she fancies you before she pounces. There is a better way for you to find out what has really happened. It's the only way. Pay me a visit so we can talk things over without prying eyes. So help me God, I will tell you the whole truth and nothing but if you come and see me. Cause in this game, I know who the fucking fibber is. I always did. What's more, I can fucking prove it. So, on that knife edge, O toe low sir of this parish, I wish you the best of British luck. As for you, fucking Ness, if you're reading this, you can take a flying fuck. Hello. It sounds like my rhyming machine's gone off again. Ker-ching-a-ling-a-ling.
It was only on the train that I was able to take stock. We'd managed to speak briefly the night before. You were calling yourself Izzy. This change was the biggest reminder of the years that had flown by. When you were a child, we called you Bella. I found it difficult not to say Bella. I sensed my clumsiness displeased you. And while there was definitely an openness I haven't felt with anyone for a long time, the rest of our conversation was predictably edgy and short. Despite everything that might have been said, I suppose there must have been a mutually felt need to abbreviate our exchanges. Did you feel that? We just about managed to make an arrangement to meet. But why did we choose Westminster Bridge during the rush hour, of all places? Needless to say, early next morning I was on a train to London. That evening I would be the guest of a barrister friend I'd met at a local Crown Court, Dorothy Last. Despite the fact that we hadn't seen each other in a while, when I told her what I was doing, Dorothy offered me the use of her spare room. As my train rumbled up the coast, I stared out to sea. My neck worked itself into a crick. I get movement problems sometimes, to do with my injuries. Even so, I couldn't avert my gaze. It was something about the wide stretch of ocean, maybe the undulations, that was so fascinating. The water to the horizon was flat and dark. For the longest time, I seemed to do nothing but stare at the outline of a pink mist hanging low in the sky, knowing that any sudden movement might send shooting pains along my neck. But that milky sky and the stillness of the surfaces, with just a few ripples and lazy breakers along rocky beaches, it couldn't have contrasted better with the upheavals I was facing. You may as well know how I felt that day. All night, I'd struggled to contain my emotions. I hardly slept. Your voice had a ringing confidence I could still hear on the train. I thought of calling Vienna to find out from your mother what exactly you were doing in London. It was a sign of the extent of my disarray that I had my phone in my hand, ready to ask that question at a quarter past three in the morning. I hadn't spoken to your mother in months. The longer I left it, the more shameful it felt. I'd managed to ignore, I suppose, how much my life was haunting me, always creeping up on me. Now I was being swept inland, towards a city I hardly knew, where I would encounter you as a young woman for the very first time. As I stared at the landscape rushing by, my apprehension reached a higher pitch. I couldn't imagine what I might say to you, or how we would be together. I remember trying to think about my employer as a way of distracting myself. Since my return to work from a period of convalescence, Anthony Bride had become a regular vexation. He was easy to fixate on. What spoiled it slightly was the fact that I knew Bride wasn't causing these inner spasms. I was doing that on my own. It was as if I was the man I'd been, coming into conflict with the man I was becoming. 
by projecting my miseries onto someone as deserving as the vicar, I was able to construct a disturbingly satisfying diversion. I recalled his mouth first. The day before, shortly after Ava Gillian had left the office, I asked him if he had a moment to spare. Bride's mouth was unusually complex. It was like a small unfolding rose. He was capable of producing an expression of bemusement unique to him. He did this now. It was something hideous I couldn't help looking at. Making a special effort to mispronounce my name, he said in his best public school slur, If you intend to make an apology, loser, be sure to make it an abject one. I brushed his opening gambit aside. There was no time for the usual spats. I told him something private had come up. I said I needed to take a week off work with immediate effect. His expression of bemusement turned into puckered shapes of astonishment. It was as if the rose was retracting back into itself. The figure even wound his head back. He opened his eyes so wide it made me wonder how he normally managed to see. At last, he said, You need to do what? I explained that it was my intention to travel to London. I told him it was because of an unexpected development to do with my family. He asked if it was urgent. I said that it was urgent for me. I was forced to concede, though, that it might not have been urgent for anyone else. Bride knew then that he had the upper hand. The office manual stated that any non-urgent leave had to be arranged and diarized at least one month in advance. Although my employer sensed correctly that I was going to go to London, manual or no manual, he did have some leverage. After all, I was technically replaceable, yet we both knew that replacing me wouldn't be so easy. In the market for solicitors, there were too few who were qualified to work on criminal cases. Hardly anybody wanted to do it. It was a merciless job. Does the way I speak make you smile? I can imagine you smiling. The thing is, the reputation of the criminal advocate was in shreds. Clients were always either destitute or desperate. The pay was poor and was subject to cuts every year. For these reasons alone, Bride couldn't comfortably follow his inclination to be tyrannical. Yet he kept sneering. He flicked back a greasy strand of black hair that had fallen over his forehead. If his inclination was to make my life difficult, he certainly could. So I made him an offer. I said that after I had attended to my family matter, I would visit Marley Godwin in prison. I explained that I'd recently come into some information, potentially fresh evidence that might justify the expense of a trip to London in order to investigate Marley's case further. Bride had long been suggesting that I should visit her. The fact that I might continue to provide him with something to find amusing was always likely to appease him, but only partially. As soon as I started to bargain over how long I might stay away from the office, he dug his heels in. When I told him I might be away for a week, maybe more, it was as if his whole face was contracting into his mouth. I reminded him that, in view of my absence, 
I would no longer be in a position to represent Ava Gillian at her trial. The trial was only days away by then. At this, my fickle employer brightened visibly. In what he regarded to be a magnanimous gesture, he offered to take Ava's case off my hands. We agreed that it was unfortunate that I had to travel to London at such short notice, but it was probably for the best, we told one another. At least I could continue to work on Marley's case, we said, and so on and so forth. I had no choice but to be grateful. My days as a solicitor were always numbered. I can still hear you asking why. I've tried explaining. Ever since coming out of hospital, I'd been living with the feeling that I'd woken up in a nightmare. I hadn't spoken to anyone about it. You were the first person I was able to articulate myself to. The situation we faced together, though, had so many levels. What was happening to me was too easily lost, I guess. As my train sped through an inland plain, I turned my thoughts to Marley's case. Before leaving, I had dictated a short response to her latest rant, informing her that I'd booked a legal visit to see her on Monday, the 3rd of July. As a favor to me, I asked her to kindly refrain from referring to me as O Toe Lo Sir. I told her that as long as she understood how to pronounce my name correctly, that would be sufficient for our purposes. Emilia Godwin's encounter with the man I was guessing was Julius Haft had made me realize that I'd been underestimating the significance of Haft's role in the case. It remained difficult for me to evaluate Charlotte's claim that he'd wanted to kill her. Louise's opinion that Charlotte had been suffering from paranoid delusions seemed more valid. Marley's most recent letters only confirmed it. She was dismissive of Haft. I know I should have made the connection sooner, or at least asked more questions, but I was distracted by myself, by my work, and then by you. As far as the professor himself was concerned, I'd begun to do some basic research. The images Google offered were of a man in his early sixties. He wore tailored suits and ties. There was no indication of his height. In all the photographs I saw, he was seated. In every pose, his expression was passive. His thinning dark hair was combed into a mesh that thickened at the back of his head. His eyes were close-set. They appeared small and intense, so black it was difficult to tell what color they were. There was plenty of biographical information. I'd sifted through some of it. Haft was born in 1956. He began his secondary education at Gravesend Grammar School. The school had been bombed by the Germans. The Luftwaffe thought it was eaten and therefore a legitimate target for destruction. When we see each other again, maybe I'll try to explain the irony of this to you. Haft finished with excellent grades and was awarded a scholarship to Cambridge. He read physics and engineering. In 1979, he completed his doctoral thesis with a dissertation concerning the development of viscoelastic materials for space exploration. 
It was in 1997, I think, he was awarded a professorship in fluid dynamics. By 2005, he'd established himself in industry. He was chief executive officer of a company called Malscat Technologies, a key supplier to the arms and aerospace sectors. Fine. But while all of this was impressive, none of it struck me as remarkable. Professor Half didn't appear to me to have the profile of a murderer. Equally, it didn't seem to be the profile of a man who had been warned by police sometime in 2016 to desist from making contact with Charlotte Godwin or face prosecution for harassment in a magistrate's court. I had all Marley's letters scanned onto my laptop. By then there were 18 of them, with many references to the person I thought must be halved. In her ninth and tenth letters, for example, she mentioned spotting someone tall and thin in the street. Charlotte seemed to be afraid of him. In her twelfth letter, she wrote that she might have seen this person again, not long before Charlotte was murdered. Up until then, I'd been forced to regard Marley's letters neutrally, if not prejudicially. Not only was she the street criminal serving a life sentence for the murder of her twin, she was open about being deceitful under oath. That Amelia Godwin may have spoken with Haft the week Charlotte died was a different matter. It gave Marley's sightings a credence I could no longer ignore. I was rereading her fifth letter when I was struck by a strange thought. The letter described her recovery from a drugs overdose in hospital, and how she'd lied to her doctors in order to be able to remain in the comfortable surroundings of a ward for as long as possible. There was a paragraph which struck me as particularly well composed. My hands are lovely. They have long fingers. They look best when the nails grow out. But it is scientifically proven that if you say the word social in front of my face, I will bite my nails till they bleed. You may think I need counselling, but let's get one thing straight. If that's your only habit after dying of a drug's dose, biting your nails when nervy is a bonus. Scattered among Marley's otherwise difficult English, I found more lucid passages like this one. I'd been thinking of it as a curiosity, but now I couldn't resist the idea that it might be significant. It was apparent to me that my client had something important to reveal, which she didn't dare put in writing. She suspected prison officers of reading her mail. The rule was that prisoners' correspondence to and from solicitors was confidential. But there was little doubt that prisons turned a blind eye to this, not only on grounds of security, but out of curiosity, as well as an institutional need to exert control. I had no clue what Marley had been trying to hint at. Some of my colleagues believed that she'd taken a shine to me personally. I'd been told that among her readership in the office, there was a sweepstakes bet on it. Like the rest of the gossip about Marley, I ignored this nonsense. My own speculation had been triggered by Marley's use of language. While her letters remained scatological in tone, they were occasionally peppered with a vocabulary and style that surpassed her normal output. You would build on this idea. 
She maintained that she'd taken on aspects of her sister's personality, just as Charlotte must have been influenced by her. She intimated that her language had improved dramatically during the period when she was living with Charlotte. In her 15th letter, she said that she'd started to write poetry. She included a poem in that letter, which was rudimentary in form. Writing to each other is a step along the ways. We got matters to consider so we can smash my case. Now there was a second poem copied into Marley's most recent letter to me. I'd only received it the previous afternoon. This latest poem was in the form of a limerick. When you read it, you quickly saw what I'd begun to appreciate much more slowly. Even to my untrained eye, it seemed that Marley was making incredible leaps from one week to the next. In the opening stanza of her most recent poem, she described the impact of the death of her sister. First thing you see is two me's. We stood there together like trees. Then one gets chopped down and the other is found, all by herself on her knees. The strange idea I had on the train to London was that I was being written to not by Marley, but by Charlotte. In the ordinary course of events, it was a whim too incredible to contemplate. But the whim came to life. The extreme incompatibility of the twins' backgrounds made it easy for me to imagine that they must have struggled living together. It followed that Charlotte may even have murdered her visiting twin in a rage. I told myself that if Charlotte was desperate enough, let's say genuinely afraid of this man Haft, then getting herself arrested as Marley for murdering her sister and pleading not guilty at the trial might have seemed a good thing to do. Of course, such a crime would have required exceptional cunning, not to say mental instability. But it seemed to me that Charlotte possessed both of these traits. It just didn't seem possible, after only six weeks of living with Charlotte, for Molly to have picked up so much. You can see why I thought that it might have been Charlotte writing the letters, pretending to be Molly. The details would have been taken from what her sister had told her. Like so many in care, Molly had become a drug addict. She was impoverished. She'd fallen into a criminal lifestyle. It felt to me that the letter writer presented well the background of someone who was hopelessly immature, highly charged, and profoundly damaged. And yet the letters slipped every so often into something beyond the scope of those characteristics. I was deep in this daydream, mulling it over again, when the train pulled into Paddington Station, and there was no time to reflect on it more than I already had.